You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. I want to be a producer with a hit show on Broadway. I want to be a producer. Hello, this is Ken Davenport. Welcome to the Producer's Perspective Podcast. Uh, every single day on my blog, uh, theproducersperspective.com, you get to hear my perspective about Broadway. But here on the podcast, I sit down with an industry pro to get their perspective on our very unique and interesting industry. And this week, I'm talking to someone who is actually used to arranging interviews, not giving them. I'm sitting across uh, a wooden table right now from one of Broadway's biggest and best spin masters, Yes, I'm talking about none other than Broadway's powerhouse press agent, Rick Miramontes. Hey, it's Ken. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, and I hope it's pulling back the curtain on this business of Broadway. If you're looking to learn more about what makes this industry tick, go to my website, kentdavenport.com, and sign up for my weekly newsletter. I'll send you one email a week, one article about what I'm seeing, trends, insights, marketing ideas on what's happening on Broadway right now. That's kentdavenport.com. Hope to see you there and in your inbox. Welcome, Rick. Thank you. What an intro. Uh, Rick is the president of O&M, a public relations shop on Broadway that represents some of the biggest shows in town, including Kinky Boots, which happens to be one of my shows. It's Only a Play, which is also mine. Gentleman's Guide, not mine. I'm mad at Rick for not getting me on that show since I won the Tony. Uh, <laughs> beautiful, sideshow, upcoming Finding Neverland, and a whole bunch of other shows from previous seasons, including that little show that no one has ever talked about in the press called Spider-Man. Uh, Rick was recently profiled in a massive article in the New York Times. You should Google it. It's a fantastic read uh, and interesting insight to what makes press on Broadway work. And in addition to being known for the way with the press, he's also got one of the best fashion tastes in the industry. No tie today. I'm missing no tie. tie. Uh, so, um, big welcome to, to Rick. Um, we'll start off with very simple. Rick, you are a press agent on Broadway. In a sentence or two, very quick, what do you think the definition of that role is? The press a Broadway press agent is the person responsible for creating as much noise that costs the producers net zero dollars um, uh, in terms of selling tickets. And our partner in crime would be the show's advertising agency. And, of course, producers spend a lot of money at the hands of the ad agency buying ads, but we're responsible for creating interest in the show, uh, attention on the airwaves and in the print, et cetera, et cetera, all for free, basically. It just except for your fee, which is minuscule compared to what we would pay for a New York Times ad. Well, I would totally agree. You know, what you pay for a New York Times ad is defined and it's very expensive, but what we can do for you is literally priceless. You cannot buy it. Uh, now, we worked together a very long time ago. Absolutely. On the Jekyll and Hyde tour. A right? tour of Jekyll and Hyde. Right. Yes. Now, uh, that was literally like 15 years ago or something God. like that. Uh, tell me a little bit about your path to becoming a press agent and how you ended up in this office here today. I grew up in Los Angeles and uh, I loved showbiz, but the part of showbiz I loved was really the theater 
and performance, never really the movies, which is interesting to me and to people when I, when I explain where I'm from. Um, but I grew up not far from the Music Center of Los Angeles, which is the, Kennedy, uh, the uh, Lincoln Center counterpart, and uh, a wonderful performance space. And at the time, there were two producers there who did spectacular work, um, you know, genre-defining work at the Mark Day Perform, Gordon Davidson, and Robert Fryer, who was a legendary Broadway producer who brought in big stars and traditional plays. And then across the uh, plaza at the Dorothy Chandler, P- Chandler Pavilion, the legendary producers, Fewer and Martin, presided over the LA Civic Light Opera. So as a student uh, in high school and later in college, you know, back in those days, three dollars Uh, would buy you, would get you a student ticket to see amazing, amazing work, and I was hooked. And while I was never an actor or a performer necessarily, I wanted to be a part of the theater, and I read a copy of New York Magazine, uh, because that was my true life's ambition, to live in New York. And uh, there was a cover story about Stephen Schwartz's upcoming Broadway musical working and people working on working, and they were behind-the-scenes profiles. And there was a profile about the press agent of working, and I thought, wow, so interesting because I saw what eventually turned out to be true. This is the person who's involved in every little bit, you know, a, a 360 view of the entire Broadway scene. They're in, they're, they're in contact with the actors and the creatives and the producers and the ad people and the audience and the ushers and the media. Um, so I knew that's what I wanted to do. And I was a journalism, I became a journalism major in college and short around that time I just started interning around and Los Angeles had this funky theater scene called Equity Waiver 99 seats or less theaters sprouting everywhere very vibrant uh, an interesting theater scene and I just became very useful there to the producers of these small shows and then I became an intern at the uh, music center and then you know one of those lucky breaks happened where the guy who was then the PR man of Robert Fryer Center Theater Group Amundsen was going on to bigger things with the organization. He thought very highly of me and he introduced me to Mr. Fryer and literally two weeks before I graduated from college, they just basically gave me the whole department. It was like, it was one of those, I don't want to do it, give it to the kid, he'll do it. Uh, And, you know, that was an amazing break. I remember my first day on the job, my first paying job in the theater, I was sitting in a rehearsal room listening to Lillian Hellman answer questions of the cast of Another Part of the Forest. So it was, it was spectacular. And Mr. Fryer, you know, may he rest in peace and what a troublemaker he was and a great tastemaker, said, you know, kid, you got to pay attention to what you're doing right now and really serve these people that you're working with because they'll, they, they will take care of you for the rest of your life. And that's really proven to be true, particularly moving to New York, etc. That's fantastic advice about taking care of those people. As a producer, I have to think of the same thing. How do I take care of the artists, the actors, Mm -hmm. and the audience, of course? Indeed. Uh, What do you think, is is there a secret to a show getting great press these days? Are there certain ingredients for a show that that gets the attention of the 
press and the audience? I think it's it's two things. The obvious answer, and let's you know that's the elephant in the room. If you have a big star in a production, uh, you know the phone will ring, and you basically answer the phone, and you're a glorified secretary, and you're just sort of setting up appointments and interviews and TV appearances, etc. It's not the most interesting kind of work for me, but one is very grateful when it happens. You know, it's 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 so hard usually. I welcome that uh, challenge, quote unquote. Um, but I think the real thing uh, that creates a winning moment for a show is the theme, what it is about, how an audience relates to it, and the moment in time in which it's being presented. You know, there are moments in our world when co- people need comedies. Um, it's only a play, you know, it's sort of like lightning in a bottle, but I saw that it might be because that show is really interesting. It is a very, very funny show that can about the theater that will appeal to a lot of people, and the cast features the, you know, sort of like the Olivier of comedy, of Broadway of our moment, Nathan Lane, but also Nathan paired with the spectacular Matthew Broadwick, which is a duo that will go down in legend in any uh, industry, and and then a, and then a cast that is full of you know other star names. So it's a show about the theater, a comedy about the theater that just seems so glamorous to the world at large Um, and so I I knew it would be a huge hit but I think it wouldn't be as big a hit if in 2014 we didn't need to to have to laugh so much Uh, and um, you know I've always admired Nathan but it is an amazing thing to stand in the back of that house and watch him open that play and perform that scene with the new kid Micah Stock who's wonderful and to just see how he pleases an audience and how he controls the audience and how artful he really is it's uh, it's it's extraordinary if you could choose only one of these three things for a show yeah a tony award a glowing review from ben brantley the best review he's ever got given or a star big hollywood star which of those three would you choose oh you only get one God comes down and says, Rick, on your next show, you get one of these three things. Which one would you choose? I'm going to pick the one that, I, that will surprise me, a Tony Award. I will tell you, the star thing is, and even if it's a big star, it only works to me, and it's only foolproof if it is the right star um, at the right time. Uh, and I've seen, and we won't name names, but I've seen it not work as well. The Tony Award, and this, and I only bring that up because we represent A Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder. And A Gentleman's Guide is what you would classify probably in Broadway terms as a hard sell. Oh, oh, you know, it's a, it's a very artful piece that does not have the full throttle populist appeal that other shows might although it is side-splittingly funny and very appealing. Um, But it is a hard sell. i got to tell you, I have never seen what a Tony Award does for a show like I did for that. And, you know, I've I've talked to people about that, and we just sort of came to the consensus that nowadays 
the imprimatur of a Tony for Best Musical or Best Play is truly, more than ever, the good housekeeping seal of approval. And it's a shortcut to, you know, um, uh, marketing shorthand. Uh, somebody comes into town, um, people go to the theater now uh, in a more limited way than they used to. Obviously, that has to do with the cost of tickets. And they need to see the show instead of uh, in a moment in time when they might have gone to four or five shows a year. That sounds good. It's not as casual a decision. And the Tony Award nowadays, as I'm discovering with the winner of last year, means more than it ever has. And it kind of means everything. Because as much as I love that show, I could see and it got a massively rave, a great rave review from the New York Times. Um, but that didn't do the, 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 whole, you know, the whole thing for it. It was really when the Tony Award was given to them over other deserving shows and almost weeks preceding that when it got the most nominations. Yeah, there was really no looking back for those guys. Yeah, I graphed that out on the blog and saw a significant upswing mm-hmm. when those nominations came out. It was as if they had heard all the good buzz. There was mm-hmm. great word of mouth about that show on the street. And all of a sudden, there was a stamp of approval when it appeared in the press that Jeffrey had led the way. Here, here. So... Uh, you got that rave in the time from Gentleman's Guide, and I've seen other shows get raves, and Sideshow is one that's getting one now, and mm-hmm. just got one. Do reviews matter now as much as they used to? How has that changed? We all still want it. We want that New York Times review. Do they make or break shows like they used to? You know, I, don't, I think it matters, and I was just speaking to a very important producer about a show that is opening off-Broadway, and she said to me, and of course I presented all the entire upside, I think this show that we're working on is going to be fantastic, etc., and she said, but you know, if we don't have the times, we have nothing. And it's never, it hasn't in recent moments been explained to me in such stark terms. So there is this idea that it is make or break with a New York Times rave. I don't think the New York Times can make or break a show anymore. I think it can be helpful. I think for all kinds of reasons, mostly opaque, not at the box office, it could be really helpful. But I wouldn't say it's the most important uh, ingredient in the selling of a show. You just made a lot of producers that are listening feel a lot better <laughs> if they don't get that to get that review. No, and I, I certainly agree. We've seen a lot of shows that have not gotten the reviews that they would have dreamed about that mm-hmm. have gone on to massive, massive success, mm-hmm. um, which is good. So, do you do you see? We'll extend that a little bit to the. The customer reviews a bit. Yeah. Do you find those matter? Are you hearing more about audiences or producers even talking about, oh, what about this the comments on the New York Times website or uh, Yelp reviews or, or bloggers' reviews? Are you hearing that? Do you think that's important? I think it is important because it's really a reflection of the most important selling tool, the most important ingredient in the marketing of a show, word of mouth. And it's an extension of that. Um, it's a little like the Wild West right now. So, you know, who's to know how much it means? And is there a, a portal to, you know, funnel those opinions as excitingly and powerfully as there might be? I don't know about that. But word of mouth is 
the whole ball game is the entire tamale, it's the meal. And those comments are a reflection of that. And if you had, what if uh, th this happened to me, which is why I bring it up, so uh, you are working on a show, yeah. you are out of money, advertising dollars, nothing, that's it. You've run six months, and but everyone believes there's still something there that mm -hmm. people are enjoying. What would you tell the producer to do? Like, what is something they can do that doesn't cost $100,000, like putting a full page out in the New York Times? The reviews have gone away at that point. Where would you tell the producer? How, how would you generate some interest in the show with zero bucks? Well, see, that's, and that's exactly where we get the call. Uh, it's, it's what, and there is a project that I'm quietly keeping my eye on that's sort of in a similar situation, and the producer of that articulated the... The, the potential end game or the what he referred to as the Hail Mary pass. You know, you're at the 10-yard line, you can see a clearing, and you get one last pass off, and maybe they'll catch it in the end zone the other side of the field. And I think it's really just making that clearing happen. Um, I would probably, and I don't have a specific, I would probably, because we are talking about Hail Mary pass time, if the audience doesn't love it, you're basically dead. The audience, you know, or if the show is just not good. But really, it's the audience who makes that determination. Um, you've got to try and keep it up as much as 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 long as you can, uh, and it's sort of playing the clock out. And I would suggest I would come up with three or four outrageous publicity stunts that cost nothing, that might generate attention, that the producer can afford, which is they don't have to pay for it. They're just paying our fee. And you've worked with a lot of producers over the years. Yeah. I won't ask you to tell me who your favorites are or your least favorites are, but mm -hmm. can you tell me, unless you want to, <laughs> uh, can you tell me some of the characteristics that you think the best producers that you've worked with have? Like, what does it take to have to be a great producer in today's market? A great producer to me has to possess to there are two attributes that I looked look to one and this is a this is a basic good taste somebody with good taste somebody of quality you know and by good taste I mean they are passionate uh, about the theater they are passionate about making good shows happen they are about passionate about Broadway and they know how to deliver something with uh, class and uh, something that's worth $150 a ticket. Um, and secondly, the really great producers are the ones who are the most collaborative, the ones that you really have a relationship with, meaning they ingratiate themselves to you as much as they want you to do the same for them, and they listen to you, and they take your opinion to heart. And there's one producer, and I won't name him because I'm not name, I'm not going to name any of them. But he really, we work so well together because he really trusts me. We get each other, and that's such an important ingredient because we can get so much work done in shorthand. And he said, you know, even when you are trying to manipulate me and you're spinning me. I trust that you're doing it for a reason. You're trying to get me to do something that otherwise wouldn't happen, and I will go with it. And I think that 
you know, generousness of spirit and trust and ability to see another POV and to pay attention to a professional um, is really winning. Uh, obviously, you have a great relationship if he's calling you out on spinning him. But <laughs> right? <laughs> he can recognize it and call you out. Can on you it. even? Uh, that's great. Uh, now, you've. Uh, how do you, you know, the thing about our agency that I always find interesting is that you. We. There's only three ad agencies in town that mm-hmm. handle all the shows. Mm-hmm. You know, if Microsoft and Apple would never share the same ad agency, right? But on Broadway, we don't have enough business to have 27 ad agencies mm-hmm. or 27 press reps. So you're often faced with a difficult uh, decision and position sometimes with representing shows that are competing or in the same season. Yeah. Last year was a perfect example of that. Indeed. Gentleman's Guide and Beautiful. Both of which came out to be monster hits. Yeah. One winning the Tony, one not, but both, you know, entering the Million Dollar Club. How do you deal with conflicts like that? And what do you tell producers who are unsure about, hey, you're having a meeting right after this one with the show that's trying to steal the Tony away from us? Yeah, you know, it's funny that the the uh, adventure of last year where we were literally involved with all four best musical nominees. Uh, it was really interesting because it it taught me two things, and to, not that not that I don't behave that way anyway. But there were two factors at play that were required because of the unique unique circumstance. Number one, campaign on your positives. Do not try and tear down the competition. Much better. We've all been involved in campaigns where the converse was the case. Much better approach. Much more powerful approach. Um, and number two, what this is all about, really, uh, it's much. It's a much bigger assignment than any one show. It's about making the Broadway experience more exciting. And 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 you know, not that I. Am not fiercely competitive and just focus on single-mindedly on any one given show, but I think the Broadway assignment, the idea that theater going, that seeing any one of these 50 shows that are on at any given time is the ultimate uh, good that I could provide my industry, um, that became very apparent then. And so it, it was a, it was, it, it almost made the com- one show competing against another you know, puny. You know, then you're just dealing with personalities and managing personalities, and it felt very high school in a way, which I love. And I, I do tell nervous nominees, don't sweat it. This is like running for class president in high school. <laughs> I love that analogy. Okay, let's talk about the the big superhero in in the room for uh, for a second, which is there. In my lifetime, certainly, and perhaps in Broadway history, no show has generated the amount of press that Spider-Man generated. Mm-hmm. For a while, at every event I spoke at, or everyone asked me about Spider-Man, I had friends calling me from Oklahoma that I went to high school with saying, Ken, what do you hear about this Spider-Man musical? I hadn't spoken to them in 20 years. Um, it probably, again, from the outset, had to be one of the most challenging public relations mm-hmm. shows to work on. Yet, I will give you the compliment of from the outside looking at you and how you handled it, it didn't seem hard from, from what you were presenting and putting out in the press. So tell me now, 
that were years behind it. <laughs> what was it like for you? Was it hard? Was it, were you tearing your hair out? Were you conflicted? Did you want to quit? Did you want to work harder? How was it to work on that show? You know, it's funny. It's, it really taught me some basic principles uh, or solidified some basic principles that I will always live with. One, protecting the artists and sticking up for the artists because the tougher it got... I just dug in my heels um, because I was sticking up for the people making the show and particularly the people on stage. They were the true heroes. They were rehearsing at, at one point a new show in the day and then doing that show at night. Uh, there was, you know, just the, the, there were these awful things being said about the show and they had to go and do the show that night. And defend the thing while they were actually performing in a complicated show. There were some very serious dramatic moments that tested their mettle and I just felt like the guy who wanted to stick up for them. You know, not just sell the show, but it felt like a, even a bigger mission. And it was such a great story and I wanted to and I really believed it although there are others who, you know, and it's interesting. Uh, I, I hear from others about my participation in this, you know, and I'm I'm viewed upon as sort of a Johnny Cochran figure, somebody who was really great in behalf of his client but like on the wrong side of the story. Uh, I never saw it that way. I always thought it was great for Broadway for all of this chatter to happen. And I got to tell you, the one thing I learned from Spider-Man, you know, which is a very practical and powerful PR lesson is, you know, you have to take or you should take the most negative aspect of what your project is and turn that into your shiniest object. And uh, it was a very good assignment, forced to do it on that one. But I really learned some skills that I didn't have uh, to that point. And, and secondly, you know, the, the opportunity to just have a focus on a Broadway show like that was so rare that that was the great thing. You know, the spinning of it was just a joyous opportunity like being the kid in the candy store and I saw the results of that because people around the world and you're absolutely right I have been in parts of the world where I cannot imagine anybody would even have a Broadway in its their consciousness and people wanted to know all about Spider-Man what was going on with Spider-Man the engagement was amazing but what happened with and, and I'd like to take some of the credit by the sense of humor with which we handled it. Um, people heard so much about the show and they wanted to come see the show. And I could feel it in the audience. When they were in the house and the curtain was going up, they were kind of rooting for the show. And I think they saw a better show than might have been on that stage. So it was, a, it was really a, a very fun example of how what we do has a direct effect on the show. But, I, I, but really, personally, it was really just about being a part of that team with those artists. Uh, and I, so many of them, Reeve, I get so choked up, Reeve uh, uh, Carney, um, you know, when he showed up, like this little indie rocker, golden boy, whatever, beautiful guy, um, when we started the show, 
I, you know, frankly, I, he, he amazing voice, amazing presence. He couldn't sell it to the tenth row. And by the time he left that show, that dude could play the garden and sell you what he was singing, back row included. Yeah, just amazing. And, you know, of course, Mr. Tierney, who had the fall. Patrick Page, who's such a great leader. Um, it, was a, it was the experience of a lifetime. And... Does all press is all press good press? You know that show sold a tremendous amount of tickets early on. Do you believe in that that old cliche? I believe in it because you know there were some really dirty, uh, um, you know, snowballs thrown at us, and um, or some very very funny curveballs thrown at us, and we just handled each and every one of them. I think. Uh, yeah, I, I, I think it, you know, there probably isn't, and certainly in politics and other uh, uh, industries, that is, I'm sure, not the case. But if you're talking about Spider-Man, that adage is absolutely true. One last question. If, you know, we live in a very dysfunctional industry, we all love it desperately. What I love about you is that it comes out in every word that you say. I can tell how passionate you are about this now that I know more about your backstory, about where you started. It's not too often we get someone, we steal someone away from L.A. and Hollywood. <laughs> and all of Broadway is thankful for that. But there are things, obviously, that make what we do every single day challenging. Some people may say it's unions. Some people may say it's ticketing companies. If you could change one thing about Broadway, you were given one wish, you could add 10 more theaters, you could have no unions, you could do it. What one thing would you do that you think could make Broadway a better place? I am going to be very practical and say I point the finger at the media and the new media and the print media coverage for Broadway and the way they treat Broadway and it's a very obvious comment Broadway matters less because we are covering it less I think um, if we could do one thing I would bring us back to 1965 when a Broadway show was in the national consciousness and the president of the United States would come and see a Broadway show because he was in New York etc etc I think that would do a lot for the stature of Broadway but the reason why I would do that is because it's true, it is important I think it makes our uh, media less important because they don't cover us it doesn't make us less important so that's that's one thing if I if I ruled the world I would start with the networks and go from there that's a great answer all right we're gonna let Rick get back to creating buzz for all those shows so he doesn't have angry producers uh, burning up his phone lines <laughs> thank you so much for sitting down with me my pleasure and thanks to all of you for tuning in we'll see you next time on the producers perspective podcast
Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.